Amid warnings about the dangers of worldliness, James confronts two groups of wealthy believers, businessmen and landowners. These Christian businessmen presumptuously planned their future money-making ventures without considering God and even boasted about it. The Christian landowners greedily committed various injustices against their workers, even going so far as to oppress them. What drove these wealthy believers to act in such a way? One simple word, pride. As both James and John have stated, pride makes one susceptible to the seduction of worldliness. In James 5, 7-11, James addresses the righteous ones of chapter 5, verse 6. Righteous implies that these believers conform to justice without failure. Not only were they justified by faith in God's sight, but their works in the sight of others justified them. Those works involved conforming their life to God's righteous standards, His law. It was these righteous believers who were being oppressed and victimized by wealthy believers. Though oppressed and victimized, these righteous believers did not resist. James 5, 6. Instead of retaliating against the injustice, they cried out to God for deliverance. In so doing, these believers obeyed the principle of non-resistance as taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus stated in Matthew 5, 38-41, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now this principle of non-resistance was born out of God's law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Exodus 21, 23 to 25. You shall appoint a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, 19 to 20, if a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. You see, God established the law of retaliation to protect the innocent and to limit retaliation or retribution so that it did not go beyond the offense. For example, in Exodus 22.2, the law states, If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, if someone breaks into another's house and is killed by the homeowner in the act, the homeowner is not guilty of murder. The law of retaliation mandates that individuals have an ethical duty to defend themselves and their property from harm. However, the law of retaliation does not give the homeowner the right to steal from the thief or to murder the thief's family. Now, because the Pharisees used the law of retaliation to excuse all degrees of revenge, Jesus needed to set forth three principles of non-resistance. These principles apply only to cases of personal rights not to criminal offenses or military actions. The first principle of non-resistance states that believers should not retaliate against those who attack their character. Matthew 5.39 The phrase, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also, is a Hebraism for insulting someone. Believers should not return insults for insults. Jesus' statement does not negate one's right to defend themselves. If someone is being attacked by someone else, God's law mandates that they should defend themselves. 
Hence, Jesus admonished his followers to bring a sword with them as they went out preaching the gospel to defend themselves from physical attack. Luke twenty-two thirty-six. Jesus said to them, But now whoever has money, a money belt to, is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. As well, when false charges were spread about Paul, he defended himself and his ministry, both before the courts and churches. And you can cross-reference that to Acts 21-22, Acts 25-26, 2 Corinthians 11, and Galatians 1 and 2. The second principle of non-resistance states that believers should not countersue to procure assets. Matthew 5.40 Contextually, individuals were being sued for their assets. In some cases, these suits were for the very clothes on their back. And while believers have the right to defend themselves in court against false accusations and frivolous lawsuits, they're not to countersue to get their pound of flesh from their oppressor. Paul further enunciated this principle to prohibit believers from ever suing other believers. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-7 Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who is, will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? The third principle of non-resistance states that believers should not retaliate against infringements upon their civil liberties. Matthew 5.41 In this context, the phrase, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too refers to Roman conscription, which forced citizens to carry military equipment for soldiers. Biblical submission to government includes submitting to the loss of personal rights. Now, while such submission appears counter to the American ideal, we as believers must understand that we are citizens first of Christ's kingdom, and then citizens of the United States. As well, to those concerned about the loss of religious freedom, while religious freedom is a marvelous blessing, we would do well to remember that the church was born and grew and the gospel spread globally in a world lacking religious freedoms in which Christianity was outlawed. Do not fall for the lie that the loss of religious liberties will somehow destroy the church or hinder the spread of the gospel. By understanding these biblical principles of non-resistance, modern believers, that's you and I, can understand the actions of the righteous in James 5, 6. But it should also encourage us to do the same. Injustice and oppression are sadly the results of sin in the world. And we must respond biblically to injustice and oppression. That said, non-resistance does not mean that we do nothing. In the words of the prophet Micah, he has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8. Whenever and wherever we see injustice and oppression, we should speak out against it and seek to alleviate it. Now James provides another exhortation to believers suffering injustice and oppression. 
In James 5, 7 to 11, he exhorts believers to endure injustice and oppression patiently. As Hans Kuhn states, Jesus did not set in motion a social political revolution. What he set going was a non-violent revolution emerging from man's heart, from a radical change in man's thinking, from a conversion. So James' exhortation to patiently endure injustice and oppression springs forth from James 1, 2-4. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Thus, in James 5, 7-11, we are to patiently endure injustice and oppression, because the coming of the Lord is imminent, because judgment is imminent, and because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's begin with James 5, 7-8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. In verses 7 and 8, James sets forth why believers should patiently endure. Because the coming of the Lord is imminent. Because the coming of the Lord is imminent. Now verse 7 begins with, therefore, um, which underscores that James is writing to the victims of the injustice and oppression of the wealthy believers back in James 5, 1 to 6. As well, note that he refers to the righteous believers as brethren. Not only is James writing to them as a fellow member of the household of faith, but he's placing himself under the same admonition. What is good for his readers is good for him. Now James admonishes righteous believers suffering injustice and oppression to be patient. Now the verb be patient, macrothumio, is an imperative meaning to be even-tempered during difficult circumstances. To be even-tempered during difficult circumstances. Harold W. Honer defines patience as the self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate a wrong. You see, instead of being hasty to anger or short-tempered, we are to suffer long or be long-suffering. That is, we are to exercise self-restraint and refrain from retaliation. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul states that love, agape, is patient, macrothumia. That is, it restrains itself and does not retaliate. As well, Galatians 5.22 reveals that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, macrothumia. We are to be marked by both love and patience. And if you lack agape love, then you also lack patience. When we lose our temper with others, it demonstrates that not only do we lack patience, but we lack love. Remember Peter's exhortation in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is patient, macrothumia, towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Those who have received patience from God should demonstrate patience towards others. We are to endure, James says, 
until the coming of the Lord. And we're to endure patiently. The coming, parousia, refers to the second coming of Christ. Now James' point is that when Christ returns, injustice and oppression will cease. Now regarding the second coming of Christ, it's necessary to understand that it occurs in two phases, the rapture and the return. And so when the term parousia is used, it's necessary to determine from the context which phase of the second coming is in view. Now phase one of the second coming of Christ is the rapture of the church. This event will be initiated by a shout, the archangel's voice, and the blaring of the trumpet. All believers, both dead and living, from the time of Pentecost, will be gathered into heaven and given new bodies free from the curse of sin. It must be underscored that Jesus does not return to earth at the rapture. Instead, he gathers the church, his bride, in the air. Following the removal of the church, and by default the Holy Spirit who indwells the church, the seven-year tribulation will begin. Phase two of the second coming of Christ is the return of Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Christ will return to earth with the church and establish his kingdom. He will change Satan in a bottomless pit for a thousand years and cast the Antichrist and false prophet into hell. At that time, he will judge all the living on the earth. The righteous will be welcomed into his kingdom and the unrighteous will be cast alive into hell. Now, since James is writing to believers, the parousia to which he refers is the rapture of the church. In verse 8, James emphasizes that the coming of the Lord is near. Now, the verb is near, and gizo, means to be moving towards something. We're moving towards the rapture of the church. James' use of gizo calls attention to the, what is known as the doctrine of imminence. A.T. Pearson states that imminence is the combination of two conditions, certainty and uncertainty. By an imminent event, we mean one which is certain to occur at some time. Uncertain at what time? Now, the doctrine of imminence, then, sets forth three truths. Number one, the amount of time transpiring before the imminent event cannot be determined. We cannot determine the amount of time leading up to that event. Number two, a specific date cannot be set for an imminent event. We cannot sit down and say that the rapture of the church is going to occur on September 29th, 2021. Cannot do that. Number three, an imminent event must not be described as soon because soon implies that it will occur within a short time frame. We've got to be very careful. We believe in the doctrine of eminence. The rapture of the church can happen at any time. But we cannot go around telling people that it's going to happen soon. Because that would imply you have a date. Now these three truths teach that we as believers must always be ready and prepared for the rapture of the church. It can happen at any time. Hence, imminency provides a sense of expectancy. 
That is, we should look forward to the rapture and live in light of it. However, we must be careful about setting specific dates for the rapture. Any believer who sets a specific date for the rapture is violating the doctrine of imminence. As well, believer, you need to be very careful not to promote that Jesus is going to return soon. 2,000 years ago, James and the Apostle taught the imminence of the second coming. And that 2,000 years have passed implies the second coming was not soon to them. Teaching that Christ is coming soon, or in our lifetime, provides fodder for the skeptics to mock the faith once delivered. Now many believers, and perhaps some of you listening, are quick to talk about the supposed signs of the time. The signs of the time given in Matthew 24 are those signs which will precede the return of Christ. In other words, Christ details the events that will occur during the tribulation. Matthew 24 can be outlined this way. In Matthew 25, 5 to 14, the signs of the times are the first half of the tribulation. Matthew 24, 15 to 28 is the second half of the tribulation, which begins with the abomination of desolation. And Matthew 24, 29 to 31 details the return of Christ. Furthermore, the events of Matthew 24 fit perfectly within the framework of Daniel's 70th week and John's revelation. Consider this. In Daniel 9.27, we have Daniel's 70th week. He says, the prince that shall come, that is the Antichrist, will make a seven-year covenant with the Jews. The first half of that will be three and a half years. In the middle of that three and or in the middle of that seven years, at the three and a half year mark, the covenant is broken, sacrifices and oblation cease. And then the last half, the last three and a half years, will be a period of desolations. John's revelation. Consider that in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 19, verse 21, we have the tribulation. We have in chapter 6, 1 to 18 of Revelation, and chapter 8, 1 to 5 of Revelation, the first three and a half years, the sealed judgments. Which, by the way, if you read that passage, it corresponds very succinctly to Matthew 24, 5 to 14. In chapter 12 of Revelation, verses 1 through 17, the Antichrist reveals himself. The dragon is cast out from heaven to earth. We have the abomination of desolation. And then, in Revelation chapter uh, 8, 11, and 16, we have the trumpet judgments and the vile judgments, which is the last half of the tribulation. Now again, let's take that Matthew 24 and set that on that framework. In Matthew chapter 25, 5 to 14, we have the beginning of sorrows, wars, famine, pestilence, earthquake, false Christ. Then in Matthew 24, 15 and 19, we have the abomination of desolation. And then in chapter 24, 20 to 22, we have a period of tribulation such as the world has never seen before. Now friends, in light of the imminency of the rapture, we can endure oppression and injustice patiently. And to support this premise, James provides an illustration of a farmer. He states the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late 
rains. Now, culturally, the farmer, Georgos, refers to a tenant farmer or someone who farms rented land. This tenant farmer sowed the seed and now waits for ekdekomai or looks expectantly for the precious produce. Despite external circumstances, such as arid hot winds that would cause the plants to wilt and die, the farmer is patient, macrothumio. That is, he is even-tempered during difficult circumstances. Instead of getting angry, he looks expectantly for the early and late rains, which will enable his crops to grow. Now, the early rains refers to the October-November rainy season, whereas the late rain refers to the March and April rainy seasons. There's only two seasons in which the farmer can expect rain to water his crops. He must trust in the providential care of God to provide the rains in their seasons needed for his harvest. And just as the farmer must expectantly and patiently endure, James admonishes us to be patient and strengthen your hearts. Again, be patient, macrothumio, implies that we are to be even-tempered amid difficult circumstances. Does that describe you? Like the farmer who looks expectantly and patiently for the early and late rains, so we must look expectantly and patiently for the rapture. As well, we are to strengthen our hearts. The verb strengthens to rezo means to be determined or resolute. It conveys a sense of stability or firmness. Hearts, cardia, refers to the center of our emotions and passions. Hence, we are to stabilize or control our emotions amid injustice and oppression. It is not the time for believers to lose hope because of outward forces. The, though outwardly believers may be facing injustice and oppression, inwardly we should have peace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Listen, friends, losing your temper or snapping back is the antithesis of being even-tempered. When believers, when we lose our temper or snap back, we are in direct violation of the command to patiently endure. As well, the lack of patience denotes a lack of love. Believers, we, you and I would do well to control our emotions and not allow our circumstances, no matter how unjust, to cause us to lose control. When suffering injustice or oppression, remember the Lord's coming is imminent. Let's move on to verse 9. James 5, 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. James sets forth a second reason why we should patiently endure in verse 9. Because judgment is imminent. Judgment is imminent. Again, James addresses his reader as brethren or brothers and sisters. He has more difficult things to say to them and wants them to know that his admonishment comes from a heart of love. The verb begins with a command. Do not complain. 
Now the verb complain, stenazo, has a primary meaning of moaning or groaning because of painful circumstances. Stenazo, as well as its synonym, gungazo, denotes the nuance of being critical and passing judgment. The Old Testament usage of these terms helps to ascertain the different nuances of this term. In Exodus 2, 23-24, it states that the sons of Israel sighed, stenazo, because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Here the Israelites groaned under the injustice and oppression and cried out to God for deliverance. Numbers 11.1 states that the people were murmuring, ganguzo, wickedly before the Lord. That is, they were being critical of and passing judgment against the Lord because of their circumstances. In James 5.4, these oppressed believers had moaned or lamented in prayer to God about the injustice done to them. However, it is effortless for one's laments before God to become something altogether different. Note the object of their complaint in 5.9, against one another. Remember, the wealthy believers were oppressing the poor believers. And under the weight of injustice, they began to criticize and judge, that is, murmur wickedly against them. Listen, when faced injustice and oppression, we can moan to God about our oppression. But we must guard against criticizing or judging or murmuring wickedly against our, the injustice and our oppressors. Now, here's an example of the philosophy of consequentialism. Consequentialism judges whether something is right or wrong based upon the results or outcome. Consequentialists typically follow one of two mantras, the end justifies the means, or if it feels good, do it. In other words, the more good an act produces, the more right the act is. Thus, a consequentialist would justify their wicked murmuring based upon the injustice and oppression they were suffering. For example, since they were treated so poorly, it was only right to criticize and tell others publicly. By telling others, they might protect someone else from being victimized. And sadly, many Christians have unknowingly subscribed to the philosophy of consequentialism. Believer, you and I must be biblicist. That is, the Bible must be our sole authority for all of faith and life. And that means, believer, that we must be non-consequentialist. A non-consequentialist determines the right or wrongness of an act based upon a set of moral absolutes. For Christians, that moral absolute is God's word. Hence, thus saith the Lord becomes the critical determiner in establishing whether something is good or evil, right or wrong, moral or immoral. The issue of complaining or murmuring wickedly against one another falls under James' previous admonition in James 4.11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Remember, to speak against, kataleleo, has a wide variety of meanings, including maligning, disparaging, gossiping, and criticizing. Judges covers a range of issues from talking critically against someone to condemning someone. 
Once again, James is drawing from James' sermon on the or Jesus' sermon on the mount, judge not that you not be judged. Jesus' admonition was not a prohibition against all forms of judgment. Instead, he was warning against judging with a critical spirit. A critical spirit is often motivated by jealousy, bitterness, or selfishness. And because Scripture condemns jealousy, bitterness, and selfishness, it is immoral for us to malign, disparage, gossip, murmur, or have a critical spirit. Regardless of how you may try to justify your actions, the Scripture is clear, do not speak against one another, do not complain against one another. Now, understanding his own sinful nature, James provides a further reason why believers should not murmur against their oppressors, but instead patiently endure. The judge is standing right at the door. See, my friends, when you complain against one another, you will be judged. The verb be judged, crinel, means to render judgment and punishment upon someone for sin. Thus, to murmur against one another, even if the cause seems justifiable, is to be guilty of sin. Now, this judge will do judgment against believers. Who is the judge? According to James 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Exodus 24.12 identifies God as the lawgiver. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. The one who gives or appoints law is the only one who has the authority to render judgment upon the law's enforcement or application. That one is none other than God who will judge the unregenerate at the great white throne. Revelation 20. Verse 11, 13, and 15. I saw the great white throne and him who sat upon it. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. God the Father has also given the Son the prerogative to judge in the last days. John 5, 22 and 27. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now this judgment includes several judgments. Believers' works will be judged by Jesus at the Bema Seat following the rapture. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 The just and the unjust will be judged by Christ when he returns at the end of the tribulation. But when the Son of Man comes, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, during the millennial kingdom, the people will be judged by Christ if they do not go up to Jerusalem during the feast to worship him. Zechariah fourteen seventeen, And it will be that whichever of the families of earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So returning to our text of James, by murmuring wickedly against their oppressors, 
believers have violated God's law, the royal law of Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor. Now, you might protest, and you might claim that anyone who oppresses someone or commits an injustice is to be viewed as an enemy, and as such it's justifiable to murmur against them. And while they may be an enemy, using such to justify murmuring against them is what the Pharisees did. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confronted and condemned this Pharisaical mindset. In Matthew 5.43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. The Pharisees thought that one should love their neighbors, but they created a loophole in God's law, or at least tried to, by saying it was okay to hate one's enemies. To that, Jesus replied in Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Even an enemy is still a neighbor in God's sight, and therefore we must love and pray for them. You know, because Jesus is going to judge every deed done, we cannot, we must not murmur wickedly against one another or even our enemies. Are you guilty of that? We need to consider that. We need to examine whether we are guilty of doing just that, murmuring or wicked uh, against one another, even our enemy. Instead, we need to pray for them and practically display God's love to them. Let's go on to verses 10 to 11. As an example, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. In verses 10 and 11, James sets forth a third reason why we should patiently endure. Because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. As an example, James sets forth the Old Testament prophets and Job to demonstrate the Lord's compassion and mercy. The term example, hubodigma, is unique as it was used in Maccabean martyr literature to refer to the heroic examples of the Jewish martyrs. Such an example is given to spur us to imitation. Both the prophets and Job's are examples of suffering and patience. The phrase suffering and patience, tes kakopathies kai tes macrothumias, is challenging to translate. James likely adopted this term from the Maccabean martyr literature as well. Translators have rendered the phrase patient in the face of suffering, suffering that is qualified by patience, or patience under ill treatment. The verb suffering, kakopathia, refers to an affliction unjustly afflicted. Patience, macrothumia, is being even tempered or long-suffering during difficult circumstances. It is exercising self-restraint when desiring to retaliate. Believers should imitate the prophets and Job in the way they patiently endured suffering. Can we say we do that? Paul exhorted Timothy to do the same in 2 Timothy 4.5, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship. Now the prophets suffered because they spoke in the name of the Lord. To speak in the name of the Lord was to speak with the Lord's authority. Because they called out the people for their sin and announced God's judgment, they suffered. 
And while James does not mention any specific prophets, the Old Testament records some of their sufferings. Jeremiah was put in chains, beaten and imprisoned. Jeremiah 22 and 37.15. Naboth was stoned, 1 Kings 21.13. Uriah and other prophets were killed by the sword, Jeremiah 26.23, 1 Kings 19.10. 150 prophets hid from Jezebel in a cave, 1 Kings 8.4. And as well, Paul testified in Hebrews 11.35 to 38 that the prophets were tortured, mocked, scorched, imprisoned, sawn in two, put to death with the sword, afflicted, and ill-treated. And you think you've got suffering. Despite all their suffering they endured, to which James says, we count those blessed who endured. Blessed, makariza, means to possess God's favor. Endured indicates that they persevered through their suffering. In other words, just because someone is going through trials and testings does not imply they lack God's favor. No doubt James is referring to Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who before you. Being blessed, friends, does not mean that the prophets were free from trials, but that they had joy in trials because they possessed God's grace. Joy is the present reward for enduring trials. Believer, when you and I endure trials, we will be joy-filled in the present. As well, believers today, particularly here in the West, ought to take time to reflect on what we consider suffering in light of what the prophets endured. Job is also noted for his endurance. Endurance, hupomonai, is the patience or perseverance to endure hardships. Job did not know of the exchange between God and Satan regarding his faith. Nonetheless, he persevered. His land, livestock, workers, and houses were stolen and burned. His children were killed in a natural disaster. Finally, he was robbed of his health. Did he complain to God about his sufferings? Yes, but he did not curse or forsake God. Through all of the suffering, he remained faithful. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job 1.22 Job 2.10 he said, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What an example for you and I, believer, of how to be faithful to God despite suffering. How are we doing with that? James notes that his readers have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings with Job. The term outcome, telos, has various literal and figurative meanings that must be determined based on the context. But James uses the term here to denote the result or goal that a plan is intended to accomplish. The term dealings is not in the Greek text. The translators added it to clarify the term outcome. The point is that the Lord has had a plan in Job's suffering to bring him to an intended goal. Job's suffering was a test of his faith. Contrary to the thoughts of his friends, his suffering was not the result of sin. Nor was his suffering caused by God's lack of care for him. Job confessed that though through suffering, he learned that God is sovereign and that his purposes cannot be foiled. Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's purpose for Job's suffering was to produce patient endurance. James has come full circle to the opening words of his epistle. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James 1.2 and 3 Having held up 
the prophets, and Job as evidence. He now, James now emphatically states, the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. That verb is, is a, it shows a state or quality of being. In other words, James asserts something of God's character, namely that he is compassionate and merciful. He draws his statement from Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. These two attributes of God are theologically classified as relational attributes because they demonstrate how God relates to his creation, and particularly us, his people. That God is full of compassion. Polos plagnas means that he has a high degree of affection for his people. Merciful, like Tirmon, implies that God is concerned about his people's miserable state or condition. Taken together, these terms communicate that while God may bring suffering into our lives, He takes no pleasure in it. Because He cares, He has a good purpose for our suffering and will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. Friends, while it may be unnatural, we can patiently endure injustice and oppression because of the coming of the Lord is imminent. Because judgment is imminent. And because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When you're tempted to murmur wickedly because of injustice or oppression, remember the testimony of the prophets in Job. My friends, when you murmur wickedly, what you're doing is revealing how little you understand God's purposes. Take what God gives. Cry out to Him for deliverance. But most importantly, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd work and move upon our hearts. Father, so often what we perceive as suffering pales in comparison to the suffering of saints around the world and saints bygone. But Father, I pray that in the midst of our perceived suffering, in the midst of perceived injustice, and perceived oppression, that Father, we would not fall to the temptation to murmur wickedly. Perhaps some have. Perhaps they've even justified it. Father, I pray that you'd work on their heart. Move them to come to repentance. Bring them to a place where they can forsake that and go on and try a different, more radical approach. Father, we're all guilty at some point of murmuring wickedly. We're all guilty of dealing with injustice. We're all guilty of dealing with oppression the wrong way. Father, help us to be like your son. Help us to not murmur wickedly. I thank you that we can cry out to you. I thank you that we can bring our laments to you, our complaints to you. But Father, help us from, to stay away from crossing that line of being right to being wrong. Of responding to injustice with more injustice. Help us to submit to your son's lordship and judgeship in our lives. Help us, Father, to love those who persecute us, to pray for those who despitefully use us.
Help us to guard our hearts. Help us to keep our emotions in check so that we can be pleasing to you. And so that fruit of love and patience can be emanated in our life before a lost and dying world. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.